All right, and I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 uh, this morning. Romans chapter 9, there's a handout available for you if that could be helpful to you in the bulletin. Uh, or there's some extra ones in the back, you can grab one of those as we walk through this important passage. Uh, last week I said we're starting into three very significant chapters in the book of Romans. Three chapters that preachers may sometimes skip. Uh, because of their nature. We, however, are going to do 16 or maybe 17 weeks, uh, uh, as I'm looking at it, uh, going through these chapters to try to understand them uh, and, and apply them to our lives. I would ask for your prayers as I'm praying for you every week. I'd ask you to pray that I'd be courageous and be willing to say what the text says uh, and uh, deal with whatever comes uh, from what the text of Scripture says. I pray that you would, I, I would ask that you'd also pray that it'd be clear, uh, clear, uh, dogmatic where the Bible's clear, and uh, perhaps transparent when it's not, um, and I trust that uh, God will use this time as we focus on him. Uh, in Romans 9 and 10, uh, Paul is considering who is not and who is to blame. He starts with who is not to blame for the present rejection of Israel in verses 1 through 29 of chapter 9. Verse 30, he turns, and although he's dealt with this somewhat uh, in the first part, he uh, from Romans 9.30 through the end of chapter 10, he considers who is to blame for the present rejection of the Israelite people. Now when he's considering who's not to blame, he starts on a personal note, in Romans 9, 1 through 5, we looked at that last week. and not only overviewed Romans 9 through 11, we zeroed in on the first five verses where Paul describes the great sorrow and the unceasing anguish that he felt in his heart concerning the hardness of the Israelite people. Last week, hopefully in the second half of the sermon, we saw what deep, genuine love for the lost looks like. Now hopefully since that time, you've spent more time considering that love and praying that God would give you a similar love for souls around you. And hopefully you spent more time doing that than you did debating uh, Romans 9-11. through 11. Now, don't get me wrong, I know it's fun to debate, uh, what is coming up in these chapters. Um, and I know that uh, maybe not everyone will always see everything the exact same way that I do uh, as I walk through the passage. But don't lose sight of the aim of the first five verses of the chapter. I can confidently say that God wants you to leave those verses being struck with what real love looks like for the lost. So whether that is for the Israelite nation, whether that is for your own country members, or whether that is for your own flesh and blood, we should be struck with the great sorrow and unceasing anguish Paul felt in his heart. Now, After initially describing that and saying the problem is not with himself, Paul moves quickly to defend someone else. And that's where we will pick up the text. I'll just read the first part of verse 6. Look there. 
It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay. So Paul's not only concerned to defend himself, he now will turn to defend God. And he's going to argue the problem's not with God either. And I think that takes up most of his argument from verse 6 the whole way down to verse 29. The blame for the present rejection of Israel should not be put on God either. Now, Paul will spend more time, far more time, defending God than he does himself. He gave five verses to himself, 24, to defend God in this. And uh, we will take, I believe, the next five weeks to look at Paul's defense of God that comes in this section. And the reason we're going to do this in this fashion is because this is an extremely important part of Scripture that that really deals with our view of God himself. And so as we go through such text about who God is and how he works, uh, I want to start by calling you to prayerfully let your mind and your hearts grow to embrace all that God's word teaches here. As Pastor Thomas says, we don't even know what it is, Yet, and that's certainly we're going to be considering today or in the next few weeks, but I pray that you'd be willing to let your, your mind and your heart grow to accept what God's Word teaches or gives us here. Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley wrote a book a few years ago. It's called The Conscience. It's a great book that I often recommend. Well, one of the best illustrations in the book is the illustration they give of a bathroom scale. And uh, this scale that they give the illustration of is broken, it's off, it's always wrong, it's consistently five pounds off in its measurements. It says that you weigh 110 pounds, but you weigh actually 115. Okay, so I like to ask, well, which measurement is right, uh, or better, I should say, and the answer is, well, whichever one's lower, always. Right, But which one is accurate, that's what you actually weigh. Now, what we should do with a scale that consistently measures that way is we should realign it, recalibrate it, so it measures correctly. You know, on that bathroom scale, you just take that little wheel, and the scale, just move it a little bit over until zero is actually on the red line, if you've got an old scale, or whatever, however you're doing it. You want it to be accurate and true. Now, none of us come to the Bible without preconceived and sometimes fallible ideas and interpretations, and sometimes even about who God is. None of us are right on every controversial subject, and we should admit that. So if someone comes along and shows us teaching from Scripture that actually is clear in the text of Scripture, and it contradicts our previously held positions, what should we do? Adjust the wheel. We should realign, recalibrate our views of God according to Scripture. I think that will probably happen to each one of us as we walk through Romans 9 through 11 in some way or another. Is that okay with you? I hope so. Will you joyfully submit? Well, it depends. No, I just. Will you joyfully submit? 
Will you gladly realign your views with Scripture? Some, some asked me last week, well, what's so controversial about Romans 9 through 11? I said, just hold on. <laughs> just keep reading. Actually, I just read one verse to them. They're like, oh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Ooh, that's going to be tough. These next five weeks should be interesting, but it's my prayer that we will submit to uh, our view of God, to what these passages say. Now today we're going to consider the first argument that Paul makes in verses 6 through 13, although I'm going to save parts of verses 10 through 13 for next week. So I do want to start by reading this first argument, this first paragraph. Look at verse 6. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The blame for why so many Israelites were rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and continue to do so is not God's fault. The way that Paul proves this is that he will state it very clearly in kind of an opening thesis, verse 6, and then he'll give some confirming illustrations to support it, verses 7 through 13. And so I want to start with the thesis. Many commentators, by the way, think that the first part of verse 6, or verse 6, is a purpose statement or thesis statement, not only for chapter 9 or this paragraph, but for All of Romans 9 through 11. I mean, to exaggerate the significance of this one verse would be really hard to do, at least according to the commentators. It's not as if the word of God has failed. Now, uh, what I want to do is I want to look... at this text by first considering the important thesis in verse 6. There are actually two parts to it. You can see that in verse 6. There's um, the thesis itself, verse 6a, and then support for it. Um, Everything starts with the thesis, so we'll start there. Look again, and it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So in response to all of the blessings and benefits that Paul just described in verses 4 and 5, those blessings and benefits of the Israelite people, Paul inserts a but here. He makes a transition to something very important. And his transition is, you can't say that God's word has failed. Uh, But I want to look a little bit more clearly at that by answering three questions about 
Verse 6. First question is, what word of God is he talking about here? Now, I like how John Murray answers this question. He says, the word of God should be understood in a more specific sense, not in the sense of Scripture. Okay, although we can say the word of God is the Bible, Scripture. He says, in this passage, it's not Scripture as a whole, or of the word of truth in the gospel. The word of God is also the gospel. The gospel is the word of God. But that's not his point here. Murray continues, he says, it is the word of promise in the covenants that's alluded to in verse 4. So first we try to answer, what is the word of God in verse 6? And I think it's the promise, uh, the specific covenant promises that God gave uh, to his people back in the Old Testament. I think that best fits the context. Second question we, we ask and answer is, why not just say promise then? Why does Paul say, word, word of God? And to answer that question, I think I would just make the case that Paul has an Old Testament text clearly in his mind when he's writing this passage. I never saw that until this week. And it just, once you see it, you can't but help see it. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 40? Remember that passage? It's a powerful passage, right, about the power of God, the splendor of God. He can hold the waters of the earth in the hall of his hand. He can measure out the heavens with the span of his hand. Well, in that chapter, there's a very significant part, verses 6 through 8, which compares the word of God to human flesh. You remember this? So let me read it for you. Verse 6 says, all flesh is grass, all of its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Now, as we were reading through that verse, what's interesting is that Paul repeats many words from those three verses in this passage. So that as you look in your version of Romans 9, you look down at verse 6, you will see the same words, Word of God. Isaiah 40, Isaiah is considering the Word of God and how it compares to human flesh. Paul mentions Word of God in verse 6. Uh, also the word failed. It's not as if the Word of God has failed. You see that in verse 6? Well, it's the same word that's used in Septuagint uh, of Isaiah 40 that is translated fades or falls. You know, the flower and the grass fade, or they're failing. If you go down to verse 8, in the beginning part of verse 8, you see the word flesh, children of the flesh, and that was mentioned also in Isaiah 40, as well as down in verse 11, look at the middle of the verse and find the words might continue. The election purpose of God might continue. Another way of translating that would be that it will stand, just like Isaiah 40 and verse 8. So when Paul thinks about God's unbreakable promises that will stand, he thinks of Isaiah 40. And it's not that God's word will ever fail. That's what Isaiah says. The problem is the flesh. The flesh will fall and fail. And Paul agrees with that as well. So that's why I think he 
He calls it the word of God, this particular promise. Now, there's one last question I want to look at, and that is, what is the significance of this first statement, verse 6a? So what? The main point of Paul's thesis is that God's promises aren't like weak, little, withering, and falling flowers. No, God's promises stand. As a matter of fact, Paul emphatically rejects the premise that God's promises have failed in any way by putting the word not first in the Greek text. It could be literally translated something like, not God's word has failed. There's no way God's word has failed. Now, this is an important truth for us, and we might feel basic. You may say, well, there's not really much controversy yet, right? The premise would be God is completely, perfectly reliable. He is always faithful to his promises. When he says something, it happens. When he promises something... You know what you can expect? Eventually, fulfillment. That's what you get. As a matter of fact, if you ever think in your own heart at some time, some dark moment, if you ever think something God has said in his word is untrue or has failed in your life to actually happen, then you need to understand that you've misunderstood something about the nature of that promise. Even if your experience calls you to question it, even if your mind is leading you in some other direction, you must know that God is always faithful to his promises. He's always reliable. That's the thesis, right? 968. No no one probably disagrees with me at this point. If you do, come talk to me, and I'd love to just read this passage to you one more time. Okay, now, To the thesis, Paul offers support for it in the second half of the verse. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. You can imagine someone thinking, uh, maybe God planned what he couldn't deliver for the Israelite people, or maybe he promised more than he could fulfill fulfill for them. So Paul explains, well, that's not right. And let me give you some support for this. I think the theological key to the second half of verse 6, is to consider the two ways that Paul uses the word Israel in this passage. This last half of verse 6 can be a little challenging, right? So, I want to look at these with you. Um, First, he says, all those descended from Israel. This first use of the word Israel could literally be be translated... uh, all those out of or from Israel. And what's good is uh, most theologians uh, agree on this, and they say the first Israel is used of Israel as a people or ethnic Israel. All those descended from Jacob, the Israelite people. The interpretive challenge, however, is the second half of verse 6, when you begin to dig in there. 
And it's the phrase uh, where Paul speaks of those who are, are, uh, are Israel or belong to Israel. Again, this is more difficult, but uh, some believe that the second Israel in verse 6 is a reference to spiritual Israel, which is a way of referring to the church in their view and their theology. I think uh, the church is a new community of faith, and we've replaced Israel, so the second Israel here might be a spiritual Israel or people of God, the church. Uh, I would reject that and would say that Paul is saying something a little bit different. Paul is saying, uh, instead, that the second reference to Israel, in my opinion, is a narrower or smaller group within ethnic Israel. So Paul is saying something like this uh, in verse 6, not all ethnic Jews were faithful or were believing Jews. With this last description, uh, second Israel here used, uh, he's uh, basically uh, making the point that I think he's got a body within ethnic Israel in mind, a certain type of old covenant people who were genuine believers in God's provision of salvation. Another way, just in case you're a visual learner like I am, some, somewhat. Another way of seeing this, perhaps a better illustration, would be something like this. Paul's saying not all ethnic Israelites belong to the faithful ethnic Israelites. And the first phrase would be in reference to ethnic Israel, the second part of the phrase to faithful, believing ethnic Israelites of the Old Covenant. Okay. Now this shouldn't surprise us if we've been paying attention to Romans. In Romans 2 and 3, for instance, Paul the Apostle, as he's writing to them, he talks about the fact that, remember, he goes around, he's kind of pricking all of the balloons of Jewish pride and presumption. He's popping them. Uh, Reliance in the Torah, circumcision. And he, can close, he closes this way in chapter 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one on the outside, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Paul's already been arguing this way. So in Romans 9 and verse 6, he says, not all those who descended from Israel are or belong to Israel. I think he's driving at the fact that God's heart has always been for the internal. So back in Romans 9, I think Paul is addressing an error that was probably common among Jewish people in Paul's day. And that is that they would be saved by virtue of being born a Jew. The substance of Paul's argument, then, is that salvation was never promised to every ethnic Israelite. That's the whole point. If you you missed all the drawings and circles, you're like, man, he's just going crazy with circles today. You should know that Romans 9, 6, I think, is primarily here to tell us that salvation was never promised to every ethnic Israelite. God only unconditionally elected some of the Israelite people, those who had faith. Now, before we move on, I want to make a few applications here that I think would be helpful for us to consider. The first one is this. One lesson from this passage is that membership in God's people has never been merely a matter of family ties. 
I think we can say that from verse 6. I heard one preacher say it this way this week. He says, physical connection to a faithful person is never enough. Unless that faithful person, of course, is Jesus, and it'd be more than a physical connection. He said, physical connection to a faithful person is never enough. So I think this is still important for us today. It was not only important for Israel and whether they'd be faithful among their ethnic brothers and sisters, it's true for us today. We can't be saved because of our grandmother or our father or our mother. God won't accept you because your mother is a prayer warrior. God won't accept you because your father's faithful, always going to church. No, God treats every individual on the basis of whether he or she will believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins and rose again, and if you don't repent of your sins, you will not be saved. And this is good news. It's good news because you don't have to have connections to be accepted by God. You don't have to have a faithful grandma. You can come on the basis simply of your own faith, believing in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. And that's what you need to do today if you've never done it before. Physical connection to a faithful person is never enough. You need to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. Now, there's another application I want to make, and this one is primarily to believers. And I'm going to, I'm going to think about this in a few different ways for you because I think this is really important. Second application is this. We also learn here that it is critical to grasp the true nature of God's promises found in the Bible. You see, Paul's original readers aren't the only ones to ever ask the question, has God, or has the promises, or have the promises of God failed? And if we, or when we, misunderstand the nature of God's promises to us, it can have devastating consequences. And so I think one of the greatest applications we should get from this passage is we need to understand the true nature of what God is promising in the Bible. Because if Paul's readers understood this, they would know that the problem, there's no way the problem's with God. He never promised to save every ethnic Israelite anyway during this time. Um, now, uh, some of the ways uh, I think this can affect us. If, for instance, we believe that God has promised to heal those who are pure or who have enough faith for the healing, and then it doesn't happen for our friend or parent or spouse or child, then it can destroy our faith in God. You see, the, the simple point I'm trying to make, misunderstanding God's promise can devastate you. We think then God is weak, God didn't come through in his promise, and it can crush us. Or in some cases, God might tenderly bring along another person to show us the truth of Scripture so that you realize you've been lied to or you've misunderstood something about the promise of God. At this point, you say, is this theoretical? No, I think of a very special family at Colonial who could have been crushed by a false view of God 
but God rescued them and he brought them to us. It's important that we embrace how the Bible actually portrays the promises of God. Or maybe you believe that God's promises to help earnest, God promises to help earnest believers achieve a higher life where we won't regularly struggle with temptations and sin. I remember reading the book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, uh, written by J.I. Packer, a trusted resource. But in the book, Packer describes his own walk with the Lord, and he said early on in his Christian life, he believed this. He believed that if we were earnest enough in our prayers that we would achieve a higher life where we wouldn't regularly struggle with temptations and sin. He was taught this. He was taught that if he was sincere enough, serious enough in his longings and prayers, that he would utterly defeat sin. The problem for Packer was he could never achieve it. Seemed like all the other speakers were achieving it. He said, but it was like they were on a bus that he could never catch. And try as much as he would. And try as hard as he could. He always had to struggle with sin. And, and so this almost destroyed him. He almost gave up entirely. Until, that is, he started working through Romans 7 and 8. And he saw stuff like, when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Or in this battle, he, he read about setting your mind not on the flesh but on the spirit so you can have victory day by day. Or when we read the Bible, perhaps another way we misunderstand the promises of God, when we read the Bible as a code book and do crazy things with all the numbers in the eschatological books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, so that we're convinced in our study group that Jesus will return in 2023. And that works for a while. It gives us zeal to do whatever we can until 2024 comes. And then it destroys us. Because we've misunderstood the promises of God. And it impacts us. Now, in the rest of this paragraph, verses 7 through 13, we'll come to verses that will probably call into question some of the ways you've thought, against, uh, thought about God. And again, it's my, my ask to you that you would let your mind and heart grow to embrace all that God's Word teaches. And so let's go into these two confirming illustrations. The problem's not with God God never promised to save every Israelite people, and only some among the people have been genuine all along the way. Now, the two confirming illustrations that Paul gives here um, confirm his thesis about the problem being not with God or his promises, but with the Israelites, the sons of Jacob. Now, uh, what Paul does is he uses his Bible here, his Old Testament, to show that God has always saved only some within a group. Okay, It's not just that way with Jacob or Israel and his descendants. It was also true of his grandfather Abraham and his sons, and it was true of his father Jacob and his sons. And uh, so that's a bit of what he's doing here. I'm going to put a drawing up here uh, for you. Uh, it took so long to make it, so I want you to see it. Okay. Uh, now, uh, 
And you, you can make it a lot better than this, believe me. Um, recently, I've been, uh, personally, uh, with any free time I have, I've been getting into a little bit of a study of my genealogical roots. I don't know if you've ever done, how many of you have ever done this before? You know, like Ancestry.com or something. Okay. All right. Uh, it's amazing what you can find online. And uh, I've been able to uh, uncover and, and go back many generations to uh, my great, 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 great grandparents into the mid-1700s, and find most of them. Once you get into this, by the way, it can be a little addicting. Now, as you do this sort of study, you have to remain disciplined. Right, And you start dismissing people who don't really matter to you. Yeah, they had existence, they lived. Yeah, yeah, so, so. Get rid of that person. You know. You're dismissing cousins, second cousins, uncles, great aunts, and so because you're trying to find a direct line. Now, as we come uh, through this, uh, the point that Paul's been making has been about Israel and who the promises were intended for. And, and, uh, He's made some statements about the sons of Jacob here, and he's going to go back up directly in line to Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau. And he's going to go one more generation earlier, back up to Abraham. And he's going to consider Abraham's sons, Ishmael, Isaac, and uh, Genesis 25 says Abraham had other children as well. But what you're going to find in the process of doing this is Paul's got something on his mind. He's got the promise to Abraham and how this would be fulfilled. And, and he's going to show that according to the promise, as far as the promise goes, there's a direct line that was very important that God chose to use. And that would be Abraham to Isaac. It's not that he didn't love Ishmael or care for them. God did love and care for Ishmael and the other children of, of uh, Abraham. But Isaac would be the one who would bear the promise. And then from Isaac, it's not just both of his children, Jacob and Esau, they're twins, but it will be Jacob. And, and again, it's not that he didn't care for or love the Edomite people, the descendants of Esau, but we're looking right down the middle here regarding the promise. Now, um, as we dig in then, uh, this is not just true according to Paul's theology, but this is true in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament illustrates his thesis that God's promise is only directly related to the faithful, believing Israelite people. And so he's got two illustrations. He wants you to first consider Abraham's sons, verses 79. So we're going to go back up to his granddad. And then we're going to go uh, next week to consider Isaac's sons, verses 10 through 13. So look in your Bible at verses 7 through 9. We'll consider Abraham's sons. It says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, the point of these verses is to show from two sons of Abraham that God's plan has always only selectively and directly involved certain people. Of course, the two sons of Abraham that are quite famous, you know their names, Isaac and Ishmael, 
uh, will be the object of these verses. And so Paul will consider here how Isaac and Ishmael relate to God's promises. And uh, to understand verses 7 through 9 just quickly, I think the key would be to look and see at how some words relate to each other. And I'm going to do this twice. We're going to look at the words children of Abraham and the word uh, offspring. And then we're going to look at the words offspring and promise to try to figure out this text. And so we start with children of Abraham and offspring. And I want you to hang in there with me because this is an important part of the text. Uh, in these verses, Paul makes the, a point about the children of Abraham and the offspring or seed of Abraham that might be confusing to us. Now, to, to make it as simple as possible, the, the main question we should pursue is whether Paul intends these two terms, children and offspring, to be synonyms, or whether he sees one group being larger and another smaller. It appears to me, again, just like his argument before with Israel, not all Israel, not all those who descended from Israel belong to Israel, that Paul's got two groups in mind, a larger and a smaller group. And this is where we run ahead uh, into a bit of a translation issue, actually, in verse 7. Instead of the ESV, I like how one commentator translates this. He says, first part of verse 7, nor is it that all his children are Abraham's seed or offspring. Nor is it that all the children of Abraham are Abraham's seed. And so the point Paul's making here at the beginning is only a few select of Abraham's children are his seed. Clearly, the children are a bigger group and the offspring are smaller. Again, okay, visual learners. I've been talking for a while. You're like, I have no idea what you're saying. Okay, visual learners. Clearly, the children of Abraham are a larger group. The offspring is smaller. Clearly, also, it's better to be offspring, Paul's arguments in verses 7 through 9, than simply to be a child of Abraham. So the point he's making is not all the children we're a part of the seed or offspring. And Paul's way of thinking here is proven from the Old Testament. To prove that, only some children qualified as offspring of Abraham is, in the sense, is, is found at the end of verse 7. The end of verse 7, he quotes a text back in Genesis, Genesis 21, verse 12. It says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So who qualifies as the seed or the offspring of Abraham? Well, the Bible says it's Isaac here in 21 and verse 12. Now, let me remind you a bit of the context of that. You remember the Abraham and Isaac story and, and what is going on here. Remember back in Genesis when we went through that passage a while ago, a few uh, years ago, maybe or months ago, God promised Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son. But then after years of waiting, Sarah takes the matter into her own hands and she devises a plan. They had not been able to conceive a child yet, so she gave her handmaiden to Abraham. Her name was Hagar. 
And Hagar and Abraham conceived a son, and his name was Ishmael. Uh, but this was not God's plan, and it was not going to be a fulfillment of the promise that he had made to Abraham. God had promised that he would supernaturally give them a child. He would work through the dead womb of Sarah, and she would bear a son. So Isaac is not a child of the promise. So God comes through on his promise. He did exactly what he's promised, and they have another, they have a son, and his name is Isaac. Remember this? You, you know all this Old Testament story. Now, as time goes on, a conflict starts rising between Ishmael and the little child, Isaac. Ishmael's picking on him and uh, doing other things to him. So Sarah makes demands out of Abraham. Sarah wants Abraham to send Ishmael and Hagar away. Get them out of here. But Abraham's in a conundrum because he cares for Hagar and he cares for Ishmael. But that's when God tells Abraham this. He says, Abraham, don't be distressed. Listen to Sarah. For it is through Isaac and not through Ishmael that your seed will be called. God took care of Hagar and Ishmael, and if you read Genesis, you can see that. But God's plan to bring covenant blessings only came through Isaac. Now, there's uh, one other kind of key word that's used here. For sake of time, we won't get into it too far, but uh, not only is offspring used, but another key word that's used is the word promise. This word, too, comes the whole way back from Genesis. Again, I think Paul has Genesis in mind. These texts about Abraham um, included uh, comments about his offspring and the promise that he made to him. And I, I think the point is this. Paul keeps the concept of Abraham's offspring and the promise given to Abraham together and only connects all of those things to Isaac. Isaac is the seed, the offspring, and it is through him the promise will be realized. When it comes to the promise, Ishmael is on the outside looking in. Now, let me close. Next week, you will likely begin to be tempted to start questioning the character of God. We'll start getting into some passages, other passages that talk about God kind of winnowing out some people as it relates to the promise and the blessing and choosing others through no merit of their own. We're going to deal with that as it comes up. In the next four weeks, we will work through that. And Paul very patiently gives answers to questions that you might have as you think about this. This week, however, what you should leave thinking is that, is that God is always perfectly reliable. When he makes promises, the, the people those promises are intended for will receive the fulfillment of of those promises. God is always faithful to fulfill his promises to those who believe in him. And so if you've been questioning this, if you've been fussing and arguing with God about whether he's being faithful to his promises, I would suggest you should drop to your knees and submit your heart to what this text says about God. It'll be much better for you to surrender control to God. And to know 
that he is always perfectly reliable and faithful to all of his promises. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to work through uh, some important verses, this thesis and these illustrations that support it. Lord, as we work through uh, your holy word over the course of the next several weeks, we will learn not only that you are reliable, but that you are free to do as you would. You are sovereign, and you are glorious. I pray, Lord, that uh, our heart would be to quickly believe these things. Today, we've considered one that might not quite be as controversial, might not give us as many, many problems to try to reckon or figure out. But, Lord, I pray that uh, throughout these series, uh, we would be quick to submit and to know that perhaps there are just some things about your character we'll never understand till glory. Uh, but, Lord, may none of my brothers or sisters here today question or struggle with your reliability, your faithfulness to fulfill your promises. Lord, we thank you for this and pray that you would give us the grace to believe what the text says about you. In Jesus' name, amen.